Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, November 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the nation's COVID-19 cases soar, we hear from the state's medical officer about how Mississippians can continue in the fight against widespread transmission. Then, for some lawmakers, the coronavirus pandemic is highlighting the need for expanded access to the ballot. We examine what steps the Magnolia State could take. Plus, a Jim Crow era provision was eliminated during last week's election. How the passing of HCR 47 represents a step out of the shadows of the 19th century. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi continues to see elevated transmission rates of the coronavirus. This week, executive orders for mask mandates in certain counties will expire, and health officials are concerned about growing trends. The seven-day rolling average of COVID-19 cases have been steadily rising for a month, but State Health Officer Thomas Dobbs says that's not the only metric causing concern. We are seeing the, the declining deaths start to turn around. It's sort of stabilized and now starting to increase. So. You know, we do know that deaths will follow cases. Um, not saying that the that the rate of death will be quite as proportionally severe. It does seem like we're seeing, a, a, you know, younger folks maybe getting it, and certainly as we see less impact in, you know, vulnerable populations, our mortality rate won't be as bad. But still, we have a lot of folks who are getting it. We have a lot of people who are going to be vulnerable who get it. Even some um, healthy young folks uh, get it. We've We've had some uh, sad occurrences in the recent past for young, healthy people who, who've died from coronavirus, just sort of re- reiterating the human tragedy of this virus. If we look at trends in hospitalization, you can see that we've kind of we've kind of stabilized. We had a pretty sharp rebound coming to October, but it's kind of vacillated as we have gone through through the month. And if we look at our hospital utilization, you can see that we've sort of creeped up in our ICU utilization, but it's been relatively stable. We've had some pretty high global utilization. So although we've seen sort of record high uh, overall ICU hospitalizations, we haven't experienced the same sort of stress. Um, And we were talking about that recently. The hospitals have been doing a really good job of sort of auto-regulating. I know 
Some of them have delayed elective procedures or done things to make sure that they maintain space. But also, too, a lot of these non-COVID patients seem to be able to have shorter lengths of stay and gives us a lot more sort of flexibility in moving people around and makes a big difference. The healthcare community is getting closer to having a vaccine ready. Pharmaceutical manufacturers Pfizer and BioNTech say they are close to completing a vaccine with 90% efficacy. Dr. Mark Horn of the State Medical Association says an effective vaccine would be the next phase of combating the virus. This is just the next phase, the next battlefront in this pandemic. Uh, we had our opening phase, which was the shock and all. We got something new, realizing that it was something new and bad and different. And then we went through that uh, initial figuring out how to basically take care of these people where the mortality was high, in large part because we just didn't know what we were. I think there were things we just didn't understand. We've gained more knowledge. We've uh, gone through a large summer surge. We've got it under better control in large part, we believe. I believe y'all believe. By doing the right things, by personal distancing, we got scared enough, we did the right things, we got it beaten down, and now we're letting off again, <laughs> letting our, taking our foot off the accelerator, and we're having a surge again. But this is the next battlefront, which is going to be vaccine. Until a vaccine is ready, health officials say preventing community transmission is paramount. This includes upcoming holidays and schools, which are also seeing growing infections and quarantines. Dr. Dobbs says those under quarantine orders should be wary of using antibody tests to excuse those orders. We've been seeing a lot of that, not a lot of that, some of it, where, you know, kids are on quarantine from exposure and they want to get out, right? So they get an antibody test and if it's positive getting permission slips, say so-and-so can get out of quarantine. There's no indication that, that that's a, a way to go, and there's several reasons for that. First off, it could be that their antibodies positive because they're actively contagious. So that's not a good time to do it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, we don't know how long it's been there. It could have been, you know, back in March, and you may not have residual immunity. You could get reinfected. <clears throat> there's just too many unknowns with that, so we did send out a health alert network message. And very clearly on CDC guidance, that's not a pathway to clear a quarantine. So please, we'll just stick with the science. I know we're still learning, but we've got to be patient, but we don't need to jump the gun. Dobbs and others continue to stress mitigation practices like wearing masks and socially distancing. Coming up, for some lawmakers, the coronavirus pandemic is highlighting the need for expanded access to the ballot. We examine what steps the Magnolia State could take. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than a million Mississippians participated in the 2020 general election, over 240,000 by absentee ballot. The record turnout is sparking a renewed interest in expanding voting options in Mississippi after many voters were compelled to stand in long lines to cast their ballots. The call is coming from both voter advocacy groups and current lawmakers. Former legislator Jarvis Dorch, who resigned his seat this year, is now with the American Civil Liberties Union. He tells our Desiree Frazier, Historically, Mississippi makes it difficult for people to vote. 
We make it very hard for Mississippians to vote, and we saw the result of that by having so many long lines across the state with people having to wait two, three, four hours to vote. Um, the immediate things that we can do is to allow online voter registration, uh, provide no excuse absentee voting as well as early voting, and to just ease some of these restrictions that prevent people from being able to access their polls. If you had online voting registration, how would you verify that the person is who they say they are? Well, I mean, the process right now is that you submit a paper about a paper document um, to the Secretary of State to, to register to vote. It's just submitting that same information via uh, the computer. And, you know, you have some states that allow you to register to vote, just like Georgia. They allow you to register to vote when you get a driver's license, you get automatic voter registration. We can do things like that in Mississippi. There are so many easier ways to, to allow people to sign up and become actual voters in Mississippi. When you talk about early voting, what does that look like to you? Well, it looks like providing a few weeks um, of access to the polls where you can come in and get your ballot, submit your ballot to whatever county official or location that they're they're utilizing. Um, in some states, they have drop off. Um, they have drop off locations where you can drop your ballot off, or polling sites where you can come in and cast your ballot. Uh, it, it's basically allowing absentee voting at more locations than with an excuse, and without all of the requirements of having to get something notarized um, or submit an application. It just allows you to come in and vote early and, and not. Um, not mandating that people vote within the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. The governor has come out um, on his Facebook page and said that he would be totally against early voting, um, expanding voting, after seeing, I guess, how this count has gone for the presidential race. So uh, the thing about that is they're counting votes in these states. And they're counting votes here in Mississippi right now. There are a lot of votes outstanding in Mississippi. People just aren't standing outside the circuit clerk's offices like they are in Pennsylvania or Georgia because, you know, Mississippi's already been called. But they're still outstanding votes. This is just a process. And there, there are always outstanding votes the days after the election. So there hasn't been any chaos. The process is just working. As a former legislator, do you think that there's support to change how Mississippians vote and in, in expanding those opportunities? Yeah, well, there are two years in a legislature, two sessions where we passed early voting on the outside by over 100 votes. So we passed early voting, we passed online voter registration, we passed a, a package of reforms that were submitted and championed by then Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman, who is now Lieutenant Governor. So you've got dozens of House members, Republican and Democrat, that have voted for these uh, reforms. And you've got the lieutenant governor on the Senate side who has been a champion of these reforms. There makes no sense right now for us to not pass something that makes it easier for people to access the polls and become registered voters. We've already demonstrated as a legislature that we're uh, in favor of that. So right now, the issue is you know, why not do it now? What's the hold up? And hopefully we'll get it done next session. Okay. Okay. Well, Jarvis Dorch with the American Civil Liberties Union, thank you so much for your time. Right.
Thank you. Republican State Representative Kent McCarty of Hattiesburg says it's time to move beyond tradition and provide Mississippians with more options. He says voters should not have to wait in line for hours and no excuse early voting should be considered. Um, Yeah, I absolutely think it's time for us to start looking at some more voting options Um, for Mississippians. I think we saw on Tuesday a huge level of participation across the state, which is awesome. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, you know, due to that and due to the the pandemic that's, you know, still ongoing, a lot of people were in a situation where they had to wait, you know, one and a half, two hours. Um, And while I admire their dedication um, and, and think that's awesome, it's not realistic for everybody. I mean, I know there are people that, that work, you know, all day and have kids and, and they can't really go stand in line for two hours. And, and the bottom line is, is they really shouldn't have to. So, uh, I mean, what, I don't know what, you know, what that looks like as far as how we would expand it, but I definitely think that in-person early voting options, um, you know, no excuse absentee early voting in person, something like that is something that I think, you know, we should all be able to agree would be helpful for, for our voters, but also for the staffs at, at our circuit clerk's offices that have been processing record numbers of absentee ballots and, and you know how that process goes. So I think there's a lot of room for us to improve and kind of modernize our process. And I think it's something we can probably, you know, get everybody on board with when we, you know, come to something that that's reasonable that kind of bridges the gap from where we are and, and where we could be. Organizations like the Mississippi Center for Justice, the American Civil Liberties Union have said that Mississippi is the hardest state to vote in. Why do you think it's been like that? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think a lot of the things we, we look at in Mississippi, you know, it takes us a while to to, to see a problem and find a solution. Um, we are a little more traditional, and that's, you know, not necessarily always a bad thing, but sometimes we get really comfortable with just that's the way it is, and I hear that a lot. You know, in my, my time in the legislature so far, I hear a lot of, well, that's just how we've done it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I originally ran for office is that is not a acceptable answer to me for any question. So I think it's just there's not been a whole lot of energy to to look at, at different options. And I think it's, you know, we saw on Tuesday that there are real consequences to not looking to the future and not updating the system we have right now. And looking at the system that we have right now, what do you see as the biggest hindrance? Uh, you know, I mean, I've voted absentee once and because I wasn't going to be in the county. And again, that's the one thing about it is our absentee process requires an excuse. So um, you do have to have some kind of excuse. There's a a relatively long list of excuses. Um, That's a cumbersome process for voters and for our election staff. Um, So that's one, but then not offering um, an easy in-person option in in the weeks, you know, week or two weeks leading up to an election even. I think there are a lot of states we can look to like Texas that has a they have relatively restrictive mail-in, which, again, I'm not necessarily talking about mail-in voting, um, but in-person voting. Texas has a pretty extensive in-person voting operation across the state, and, and we saw them you know, have record turnout in this election. So I think that would be an easy step that, you know, we would still require an ID. We'd still be, you know, you'd still be signing the, the poll book like normal, however you do that in your county. You'd be casting a paper or electronic ballot, depending on how you do that in your county. And it would really be no different than the experience on Election Day. But it would be spread out over a week or two weeks or however many, you know, whatever we decide to there uh, before the election to kind of limit the surge on Election Day so that these, you know, two hour waits, three hour waits aren't a problem for people. Representative Kent McCarty, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Following the election, Secretary of State Michael Watson said it could be time to have the conversation. In a statement made on social media, Governor Tate Reeves said he would do everything in his power to ensure that universal mail-in voting and no-excuse early voting are not allowed in Mississippi. Coming up, a Jim Crow era provision was eliminated during last week's election. How the passing of HCR 47 represents a step out of the shadows of the 19th century. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Prior to Tuesday's election, Mississippi was the only state with a two-tier provision for electing statewide officers, a majority of the popular vote, and a majority of the state's 122 House districts. If a candidate failed to meet both thresholds, the House would elect the winner. It was a system constructed in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era designed to prevent blacks from winning statewide office. But last week, Mississippians overwhelmingly elected to abolish the provision, creating a clear-cut process for electing candidates for statewide office. Leslie Burrell McLemore, professor emeritus of political science at Jackson State University, reflects on this historic strategy to disenfranchise blacks and the state's decision to move away from it. There were still uh, black folk, black men who were serving in public life in Mississippi between 1877 and 1890 on the local level, and a few were left in the state uh, legislature. Uh, But it was a a glorious time in terms of black participation between 1865 and 1877. And then after the end of Reconstruction that was brought on by by violence and and by uh, unconstitutional means, uh, black people were eliminated from uh, political life but had gained uh, really some uh, authority and power because of the Constitution of 1869. But 1890, at the Constitutional Convention in Jackson, that was an effort to uh, eliminate black people totally from political life. The 1890 Constitution was known primarily for developing something that was called the Mississippi Plan. And the Mississippi Plan was a systematic way uh, to constitutionally deny black people the right to par- participate in the political system. Now, so, before before you go on, I want to ask, during Reconstruction, what was the racial makeup in Mississippi? Well, uh, Mississippi was a, a black majority state until 1940. Uh, so uh, one of the great fears uh, that started during Reconstruction and after Reconstruction was the notion that uh, black folk would assume statewide power over time. Reconstruction provided the possibility of black people having an active say-so in what goes on politically in the state of Mississippi. So to, to tell the truth, we've been involved in this ongoing struggle for power since then. 
And uh, if we fast forward to 2020, we are still dealing with this issue of a struggle for power by black people to become active participants in the life of, uh, of the state. And that's what I was going to lead to, because it's been 130 years. Last year, you were one of four plaintiffs to sue the state over this matter. Is that the first time this has been challenged in all those years? To my knowledge, in terms of a formal suit filed against uh, the state of Mississippi, uh, again, you know, it was a remnant of uh, the 1890 Constitution and a part of the Mississippi plan. And, and as you probably know, that this Mississippi plan was really exported to other southern states in the American South. So they all uh, use some form of, uh, you know, the grandfather clause, uh, interpreting a section of the Mississippi Constitution, the payment of poll tax, et cetera, et cetera, in addition to violence and intimidation. So all of these factors led to the lack of participation over time of black folk in the life of Mississippi politics. Black uh, office holders during Reconstruction prior to 1890, were they Republicans or Democrats or a mixture of both? Well, you know, they were primarily uh, Republicans. I mean, the, the office holders that we had that served in the legislature, the statewide office holders that we had, uh, superintendent of uh, education, et cetera, et cetera, all of these people were, were black Republicans because uh, blacks were uh, clearly members of the party of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so Abraham Lincoln was the obviously the hero for black people because he played a, a, a major role in freeing black folk from, from enslavement. So uh, they were Republicans and the white folk, you know, were Democrats. It was only... Uh, moving fast forward until the 1960s, and especially in 1964, uh, when that began a change in the American South, uh, when uh, when uh, when white folk began to uh, migrate to the Republican Party, and it was really in part of some of the events that happened in Mississippi with the formation in 1964 of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that challenged the regular white segregated Democratic Party at the National Convention in Atlantic City in 1964. And, and we should mention that you were right in the midst of that. You were right in the middle of it all in I Mississippi. was in the midst of it. I was a, a recent uh, graduate of Russ College in 1964 and was actually elected the vice chair of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and was a part of the formation of the party and was a part of the delegation that went to Atlantic City in August of 1964. Were you surprised by the outcome, by the margin that got HCR 47 passed? I, I was. I was surprised. And, uh, and you know, I, I think it was a reflection of the fact that people realized that this was a relic of the past, that this was a, a relic uh, that the state really didn't need anymore because, you know, we have uh, a system in place now and we have attitudes in place now that will prevent a black person from serving in a statewide position for years and years to come. Obviously, I'm an old man by now, so I will never, ever witness a black person serving 
in a statewide uh, position. I, I remember when I was growing up in, in my hometown of Walls here, my, my grandfather was a Abraham Lincoln Republican. Uh, he uh, only voted once in his life. He died at the age of 79 back in 1968. He voted for the first time in 1967, but he was a keen observer of politics and took a real interest in politics. And he pointed out to, to me and, and to my late brother Eugene, who was a lawyer and a, and a minister, that one day uh, uh, he was telling us, sons, you know, there will be a black man serving uh, in the governor's office uh, in Mississippi. And he was optimistic. And he passed back in 1968. And at that point, you know, I said, well, you know, my grandfather may be on to something because I felt that, you know, once a lot of the old white segregationists died out, that we would get a new crop of people who would be clearly willing to work with black people and to elect black folk to office statewide, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that has not happened. And given the few years that I have remaining, it's not going to happen before I go on to glory. Dr. Leslie Burl McLemore is a professor emeritus of political science and at Jackson State University and a longtime political activist. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. And you're welcome. And please be safe. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.